we finished the uh, chapter on meditation, and now I'm going to skip to uh, the uh, chapter called From Distant Lands, uh, chapter 8, and this is uh, Lumpur Cha and his teaching of Westerners. So we have a picture there, the early uh, Wat Pananachat community uh, from about 1975-76 and I start a couple of pages in the first page or two is about um, the uh, history of Thailand's interaction with uh, foreign countries starting in the mid 14th century so leave that out and just start with uh, Lumpur Cha's own experience By the time Lumpur reached manhood, the wealthy Thai elite had become enamored with the material symbols of Western culture. Expensive imported clothes, motor vehicles, gadgets, and foods were the sought-after status symbols. The absolute monarchy was overthrown in 1932 in favor of a Western-style democracy that was soon displaced by a more potent import, military dictatorship. Funnily enough, that <laughs> something, some things don't change that much over the years. <clears throat> Fascism was the new vogue, far more appealing to the military men running the country than the messiness of political debate. The country's name was changed to Thailand, before it had been Siam. Chauvinism was promoted in the guise of patriotism. Cultural mandates accompanied political change. Field Marshal Pibun Songkram passed laws making it compulsory for men to wear hats and kiss their wives on the cheek before leaving for work in the morning. <laughs> Interesting laws, huh? A marginalization of Buddhist goals and ideals, coinciding with official support for Buddhist forms and rituals, became a feature of development that was becoming an enduring trait. In the hamlets of Ubon, images of the West came from Hollywood. Traveling movie companies set up their screens and loudspeakers in village monasteries where Clark Gable and Greta Garbo enchanted their audiences in homely Lao, dubbed live in front of the screen. So the, the uh, Northeast Thai culture was very... Um, a very strong tradition of um, spontaneous uh, verbalizing and uh, rhyming and uh, what's called the morlam, the kind of dueling um, folk songs uh, between two competitors, there, and they would spontaneously make up verses and try to end your verse on a word that it was difficult to rhyme with. So the one who first uh, uh, can't come up with a rhyme, they are the, they are the loser, and uh, the one who can carry on rhyming is the, is the winner. So you had um, Western movies, and they wouldn't have any cinemas. Then the, they didn't have electricity in the local villages, so that they would set up with a generator and a screen and a projector uh, as a sort of local um, sort of medicine show. And um, and as he says, have Clark Gable and Greta Garbo dubbed live in Lao by locals, sort of in front of the screen, probably making up what they thought the story was <laughs> as they went along. <laughs> which makes for some very interesting plots. Yeah. 
they're pretty imaginative cultures. So that one, some of those must have been uh, uh, very, uh, very fun evenings. Thus, the first flesh and blood glimpse of Farang, like foreigners, in Ubon, exciting though it was, came as a shock. During the Second World War, while the newly ordained Lumpo, Lumpo Cha, was studying in local village monasteries, a group of gaunt and ragged prisoners of war was jailed in the centre of town. They were the prisoners of the local Japanese garrison, hostages against Allied bombing raids. The local people smuggled them bananas. Then in the 1960s came the Vietnam War. Ubon, closer to Hanoi than to Bangkok, attained a strategic importance. By the end of the decade, 20,000 young Americans were stationed on a sprawling airbase north of the town. Large, uniformed men, black, brown and white, strode along the streets hand in hand with mini-skirted prostitutes. They caroused in tacky nightclubs with names like Playboy and sought to escape the stress of their lives with Buddha sticks, quote-unquote. It's a local kind of marijuana. Overhead, at regular intervals, came the deafening sound of phantom fighters and A-130 airships taking off on missions over Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. American military personnel were not, however, the only young Westerners in Thailand at that time. It was during this period that villagers working in the fields to the east of Wat Bapong became used to a strange new sight. Tall, fair-skinned young men with scruffy hair and dressed in t-shirts and faded blue jeans would often be seen walking along the ox track with a dogged loping stride and with a large grubby backpack like a malignant growth behind them. These young men were the first trickles of the steady stream of Westerners who were finding their way to Lumpocha. They were to become the senior members of a Western Sangha which now, more than 40 years later, numbers almost 200 monks and nuns. And this next section is called More Than Words. Lumpo, only a few of your Western disciples speak Thai, and you can't speak their language. How do you teach them? This was one of the most common questions that Lumpo faced from the early 70s onwards, as the number of his Western disciples steadily increased. He would explain that he was teaching Buddhism not as a philosophy, but as a way of liberation. Pointing directly to the experience of suffering, its cause and the way leading to its cessation were more important than finding words to describe the process. Sometimes to clarify this point, he would pour water from the thermos flask on the table before him into a cup. Numpur speaks. In Thai, we call this Namron. In Lao, it's Namhon. And in English, they call it hot water. But these are just names. Dip your finger in it, and no language can really pass on what that actually feels like. Even so, people of every nationality know the feeling for themselves. On another occasion, a visitor, seeing all the foreign monks, asked Lumpur whether he spoke English or French or German or Japanese, to which, in every case, he replied that no, he could not. The questioner looked confused. How did the foreign monks learn anything then? Characteristically, Lumpur replied with a question. Do you keep animals at home? Have you got any cats and dogs? 
Any oxen or buffalo? Yes? Well, can you speak cat language? Can you speak dog? Do you speak buffalo? No. Then how do you know what they want... Then how do you know what you want them to do? He summarised, It's not difficult. Training Westerners is like training water buffalo. If you just keep tugging the rope, they soon catch on. The methods have not changed in 40 years. <laughs> to ties, the water buffalo is the epitome of dullness and stupidity. Comparing a human being to a buffalo would normally be considered offensive. Anyone who calls someone why to their face is either showing contempt or is spoiling for a fight. Given the exaggerated respect for the intelligence of Westerners common in Thailand, Lumpur's audiences would always find his buffalo comparison both shocking and hilarious. The sight of Western monks made a powerful impression. At a time when Western technology, material advances and expertise were being so touted by the powers that be, here were to be found educated young men who had voluntarily renounced the good things of life that people were being encouraged to aspire to. These were men who had chosen to live austere lives in the forest as monks, not understanding the language, eating coarse food, striving for peace and wisdom in the same way that Thai monks had been doing for hundreds of years. It was baffling, fascinating, and above all, inspiring. Many visitors would leave Wat Bapong thinking that perhaps there was more to Buddhism than they had supposed. If the Westerners had so much faith in it, how could it be outdated? So this is a very, um, uh, very significant point, that in, particularly to the urban intellectual classes and middle-class people, particularly for young people, that they would uh, look down upon Buddhism and Buddhist practice. They, they would uh, use the, uh, the Thai word dinosaur, meaning dinosaur. <laughs> like it's, uh, the, the religion is like a, 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 um, an extinct animal. It's a kind of a, an old, uh, defunct, useless thing that still hangs around, but it's, uh, it's been dead for, for centuries, really. And so that um, the... Because often the religion would be, prevented, would be presented in a, a very um, kind of stylized or ritualistic uh, fashion, rather like many uh, of Western religions like Judaism or Christianity, it would be handed to you as like, this is what you're supposed to believe. I don't know why we believe it, but we do believe it, and you should do what I do because it's good. And just, just take it from me, it's good. You should do it because it will make your granny happy. And that... And so, for uh, uh, again, the, the uh, um, educated classes or people who have been encouraged to go to study, go to university, and uh, to um, look at the West as an example, they'd say, "Well, wh what what makes this important? Why has this got any value? This is just the mindless repetition of old customs. You know, why has this got any importance? You know, why when you go to a, a monastery and and give some food. Why are you pouring water from one jug into another? What, 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 what's it supposed to be doing? What, what's that for? And so that uh, this impact of seeing all these Westerners who are, say, as he says, the, um, uh, they were stepping out of a life that the, the, the educated elite were being told to aspire to, they were giving that up and coming to live in, um, in the forest monasteries. And and also you have to bear in mind that Ubon is like the bottom of the heap. It's like, uh, not to, to malign Hemel Hempstead, but... Mm. Ah. 
it's not it's, uh, uh, Uban is a town without much charm it's a sort of if you came bottom in your class at law school you get a job as a as a lawyer in Ubon. If you just scraped a pass in medic in medical school and you just managed to qualify as a doctor, then you get a job in Ubon. It's a, like sort of Bihar. It's the Bihar of Thailand. Um, so that uh, choose and then uh, within Ubon, which is sort of a, a, at the bottom of the heap, um, it, oftentimes when. Uh, if people come to visit, or, or they uh, they don't know that uh, this is a branch of Wapapong, or they don't they haven't heard of Lumpocha, and that I can almost always guarantee a laugh when people say, "Where do you come from?" and I say, "Ubon," You're like it's like saying, "I'm from I'm from Hemel," you know, or "I'm from Bihar." It's like, and it's a kind of oh, <laughs> so uh, and I say, "Well, I was born as a monk in in Ubon, so my my life as a bhikkhu began uh, in in Ubon, so it's true." But, uh, my life as a monk, I was born in Ubon. And, but it's, it always gets a smile or, or a laugh because it's like, uh, well, of course, that's a joke because, you know, someone who's uh, a, uh, an educated Westerner, couldn't, he couldn't possibly come from Ubon. That's like, you know, he must have come from somewhere far more important or glamorous or significant than, than this, this place. And then within Ubon, uh, Lumpur Cha's monastery, uh, as they would say, that... Uh, Three months at Wat Bapong is like ten years at any other monastery. It was particularly tough and uh, kind of challenging as a, a style of, of life and very, very demanding. So just the very fact, uh, even though as a Westerner you might not think of very much of it yourself, but just the very fact that you're there as a, as a, a Westerner living in Wat Bapong would be kind of amazing, incredible to, to people, just a very... They wouldn't even sort of know how long he'd been there, or that, uh, or, or what kind of med- uh, any kind of achieve- achievement in meditation would be completely beside the point. Just the very fact that you, as a Westerner, are choosing to live in this in this uh, really tough monastery in this godforsaken um, uh, province of, of Thailand, the sort of poorest, roughest, uh, and uh, most undeveloped corner of the country. They, they would automatically bring a sense of wow, this is amazing, this is incredible. So when he said uh, uh, it would bring inspiration, and it's really just, uh, this means well, whatever you're finding here must be amazing for you to to they, uh, choose to to live here, and so that uh, many uh, that and that was a very very common if, uh, effect that that would have just uh, <coughs> and. You might say to a visitor, "Well, you don't know what's going on in my mind. You shouldn't be so inspired or impressed. You know, if you could, if you saw what, thought my, what was going on in my thoughts, you know, you'd be kind of uh, disappointed." And they say, "No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And just the, the very fact that you're here, you want to live in Wapapong. This is this is amazing. This is wonderful. Satu, satu, satu." Lumpur's basic technique was not, he insisted, particularly mysterious. He led his Western disciples, he showed them what to do. He was an example. It wasn't necessary to impart a great deal of information. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. Even though I have a lot of Western disciples living with me, I don't give them so much formal instruction. I lead them in the practice. Good actions yield good results, and bad actions yield bad results. I give them the opportunity to see that. When they practice sincerely, they get good results, and so they develop conviction in what they're doing. 
They don't just come here to read books. They really do the practice. They abandon whatever is bad in their hearts and goodness appears in its place. The Westerners had come to Buddhist teachings and monastic life without the cultural conditioning of the Thais. In one sense, they had, quote, beginner's mind, unquote. Longpur found their open, questioning attitude refreshing and stimulating. As students, they were largely free of the complacency that he considered such an obstacle for his Thai disciples. On the other hand, their need for explanations could make them susceptible to crippling doubts. Sometimes questions led only to more and more questions, diminishing the intensity of their practice. The Westerners often came to envy the single-minded application of their fellow Thai monks, who seemed blessed with unquestioning faith in the teacher and the tradition. Lumpur said, Once you've got them to stop, these Westerners can see clearly how they've done it. But in the beginning, it's a bit like wearing... But in the beginning, it's a bit wearing on the teacher. Wherever they are, whoever they're with, they ask questions all the time. Well, if they don't know the answers, then why not? They have to keep asking until they run out of questions, until there's nothing more to ask. Otherwise, they just keep running. They're hot. So that's the end of the first part. Any questions? (laughs) Who's hot with questions? Anybody running with <coughs> eagerness? It's not a. Don't be shy. Yes. I'm guessing Ajahn Shabas had a reputation already for foreigners to join the monastery. They must have heard some stories, or or just they just fell under the charm from when they met him the first time. Well. Um, the, uh, the book by Jack Cornfield, Living Buddhist Masters, was published um, sometime in the mid-70s, I think about 75, uh, 76? 74. 74? So that, was, uh, that had an influence. And, uh, but also just, it's a fairly small pool. And, the, the, and Ajahn Sumedho, uh, he'd been there since 1967. So when the, the, the sort of second wave of Westerners started coming in like 70, 71, 72, uh, they, uh, if, they wanted, if they arrived in Bangkok and they said, I want to go and live in a meditation monastery, then people knew about Ajahn Sumedho. Oh, there's there's uh, this place in Uban, there's some American monk, Ajahn Sumedho is a very impressive monk, you could go there. Or there's, there's more Western monks with um, Ajahn Mahabur up in, uh, in uh, Udon province. So there wasn't really a lot more than that. There were some other, other monasteries where, there were, where Westerners were around, but they were pretty shy. So there was a monk called Tan Don who was with Ajahn Fan, Ajahn Fan's monastery. There was um, a couple of Westerners with Ajahn Buddha Dasa down in the south. But um, they, uh, they kept a pretty low profile. So uh, it, within the sort of very small circle, it was a pretty small fishbowl, really. Yeah, geographically it was quite large, but if you're in Bangkok, you know, if you showed up and say you're in Bangkok and say, "I want to go to a monastery," can I find a <laughs> where can I find a teacher? And uh, excuse me, and uh, they say, "Well, um, 
there's <coughs> there's uh, Ajahn Mahabur or Ajahn Chah. You know, there's Westerners they can translate for you, and if they assume you don't speak Thai. Incidentally, the word farang comes from the word French, because the first foreigners who came to Thailand were from France in the in the 18th century. So that uh, we're, the the, the uh, all foreigners are called French in the Thai language, farang. So they say. So um, uh, that that was a, a fairly um, sort of natural path. So then many of the of the, uh, the say the, the senior members of our community now, like say Ajahn Viridamo, Ajahn Pasano, Ajahn Tiridamo, they they started off at sort of different places in in Thailand, or they they learned some meditation in India. They show up in Bangkok. And then they they say, oh, I, I really want to do this for a bit longer. And they, oh, you, you want to go to a forest monastery? Oh, well, where can where can I go? Oh, we need to go to the northeast. And there's either what Bantat with Ajahn Mahabur or uh, Ajahn Chah. There's this American monk there. So it was pretty much by word of mouth. But then, as I said, when when Living Buddhist Masters got published, and I think Ajahn Jayasara makes a point of that uh, in the in the mid 70s. Then people would, who were reading that book in, in the States or in, in Europe, they, they, they would then sort of deliberately come to, to Thailand to, to, to find Ajahn Chah. But before that, was, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been known outside of Thailand. Uh, what, what, what was the year that the Jack did um, Still Forest Pool? That was a bit later, wasn't it? I think it was later. That was, I think the first one was Living Buddhist Masters. and. And I think Ajahn Chah is like the very first one in that. He's sort of the, the kind of chapter one in, in, in Living Buddhist Masters. So that had a, so then people would read that and then they'd they'd come to Thailand looking for Ajahn Chah. So the next section is called The First Disciple. Ajahn Sumato. In nineteen sixty seven a Wat Bapong monk named Venerable Somai returned from a Tudong trip to northern Isan with a monk who literally stood head and shoulders above him. Even the most restrained monks in Wat Bapong were unable to resist at least a surreptitious glance. <laughs> the new monk was six feet two inches tall, had a fair complexion and an angular nose and bright blue eyes. His name was Sumato. The two monks had met in a meditation monastery in Nongkai province. Upon discovering that they were both Korean war veterans and that Venerable Sumai spoke English, they had exchanged their stories. Ajahn Sumato told Sumai how, after the war, he had returned to college and gained a master's degree in South Asian studies from Berkeley. Upon graduation, he joined the Peace Corps and taught English in Borneo before moving on to a spell at Tamasat University in Bangkok. He said that it was after receiving meditation instruction at the nearby Wat Mahathat that his interest in Buddhism, first kindled by his readings of Japanese haiku poetry during his military service some ten years before, had ripened into the decision to become a monk. Now, however, after moving to Isan, receiving full ordination and spending the last several months in a small hut on solitary retreat, Ajahn Sumedho was beginning to lose confidence in the form of his monastic life and feeling the need for a more rounded way of practice. Venerable Sumai's descriptions of Wat Bapong 
were timely and inspired him. He asked permission from his preceptor to leave, and before long, the two monks were setting off together to walk the 450 kilometers south to Ubon. So uh, Nongkai is also on the Mekong River. It's just across the river from Vientiane in Laos. So it's, uh, it says here it's, it's uh, north. The, the border between Laos and Thailand is the Mekong River uh, through that, that area. And um, it's also significant. Longpo Sumedho had been a, a, about a year as a novice in that meditation monastery in Nongkai, but it was uh, a monastery that was... Um, very much focused on the Mahasi Sayadaw technique, so it was there wasn't a lot of emphasis on um, community life or um, uh, say anything outside of the formal practice. So it was a, a good environment for intense formal practice. But as uh, many of you have uh, uh, listened to Dumpo Sumedho's Dhamma talks or read his books over the years, uh, he had this strong sense that. I can't live this way for a whole lifetime. This is, it's too tight, it's too narrow, it's too intense. The, and also he realized I'm supposed to be a monk, but I don't really know what the rules of a monk are. And he, so he'd spent about a year as a novice, and he'd taken full ordination as a bhikkhu, but it wasn't very, uh, very long after his full, ordina- full ordination as a bhikkhu that uh, Venerable Sumai showed up. So it was, um, he'd only been a bhikkhu for a few weeks when, when Sumai showed up. And then it was like this, this sort of messenger, not only could he speak English, which was pretty, uh, very, uh, very unusual, pretty strange, um, uh, and a, a great blessing, but Somai had been training at Wat Bapong for quite a few years, so he was a good representative of uh, Lumpur Cha's style of practice. And one of the things that was most striking to, uh, to Ajahn Sumedha when Somai came to stay at that monastery was that how... Um, his robes were of a, a darker color, and that his demeanor was very, very composed. He was very, very sort of tidy, very quiet, and uh, did everything in a very orderly way. So his conduct was one of the things that really struck him. And then, to his amazement, you know, this, this visiting monk could speak English. And he'd gone back to Nongkai because his family were, were from there, and he was just coming to visit for a family funeral. So he was only going to be there at that, that monastery where Lumpur Sumedho was, for a short period of time. So, there, so Lumpur had just become a bhikkhu, and he's thinking about, hmm, <coughs> where, you know, is this really the place for me? Is this, am I really in a good situation? And suddenly there's this very impressive monk showed up, and he spoke English, and he came from this place um, down to the south. And then when uh, 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 the young bhikkhu Sumato asked his preceptor, would it be possible to go and train with Ajahn Chah? Fortunately, his teacher... Uh, his photograph is up on the, the wall there, that colour picture is uh, Lumpur's Upajaya, his preceptor. He not only knew of Ajahn Chah, he'd heard of his reputation and was quite impressed by him, um, but also he was of a, of, of a kind of non-jealous and generous and wise nature and said, yes, very good, that would be a good situation, it's a good monastery, he's a good teacher, uh, uh, I give you permission to, to go and practice with him. So... That was um, very uh, skillful on his part because some, uh, sometimes monks, even though they might have been in robes for many years, they can be very possessive or, or controlling or jealous. Like, you know, how dare you? you know, I'm, your, I'm your teacher. I, you know, I've got you and you're, you're my prized possession. And, and some of you are looking surprised, but monks can think that way. <laughs> can be competitive and jealous and so on. But uh, 
Lumpo's preceptor, whose name was uh, Venerable Racha Prichayan Muni, was not of that nature. It was very generous and supportive and encouraged him to go to Wapapong. It would turn out to be a decision with far-reaching consequences. Ajahn Sumedho would go on to spend the next ten years of his life in Ubon under the guidance of Lumpur. He would form the nucleus around which a community of Western monks coalesced. In 1975, he would establish the branch monastery, Wat Pan Nanachat, before moving to England in 1977. There, at Chithurst in southern England, he founded the first of several overseas branch monasteries. When someone once asked Lumpur whether he had any special connection with Westerners that led to so many becoming his disciples, he replied with a smile that, as a boy, he'd watched a cowboy movie with his friends. Images from it had stuck in his mind ever since, and perhaps they had exerted some kind of attractive force. So, again, that's Lumpur child. Says, wow, Lumpur, these, did, did you know each other in past lives? You got these kind of, have you kind of got this sort of karmic connection with these, these, these amazing beings from the West? And so this is a totally classic um, uh, Lumpur Char way of kind of deflating people's... Uh, over-enthusiastic views, like the, the Buddha speaking to Ananda, like, you know, not so Ananda. So, uh, uh, again, Lumpuchara is speaking about this here. One of the characters in the movie was this big man smoking cigarettes. He was so tall. It fascinated me. What kind of human being could have such a huge body? <laughs> that image has stuck in my mind until now. And a lot of Westerners have come. If you're talking about causes, there was that. <laughs> when Sumato arrived, he was just like the cowboy in the movie. What a long nose! <laughs> as soon as I saw him, I thought to myself, this monk is a Westerner. And I told him that I'd seen him before in a movie. So yes, there were supporting causes and conditions. Actually, I also thought Lumpur Sumedha looked a bit like Charlton Heston when I first saw him. Sorry about that. <laughs> These connections do happen. <clears throat> so yes, there were supportive, uh, supporting causes and conditions. That's why I've come to have a lot of Western kith and kin. They come even though I can't speak English. I've tried to train them to know the Dhamma as I see it. It doesn't matter that they don't know Thai customs. I don't make anything of it. That's the way things are. I just keep helping them out. That's the gist of it. When Sumedho asked to be accepted as a student, Lumpur agreed, but made one condition, that he fitted in with the Thai monks and didn't expect any special considerations. And then this is Lumpur Sumedho speaking here. At the other monasteries in Thailand where I'd lived, the fact that I'd been a Westerner had meant that I could expect to have the best of everything. I could also get out of the work and other mundane things that the other monks were expected to do. Oh, I'm busy meditating now. I don't have time to sweep the floor. Let someone else sweep it. I'm a serious meditator. But when I arrived at Wabapong and people said, he's an American, he can't eat the food that we eat, Lumpur said, you'll have to learn. And when I didn't like the meditation hut I was given and asked for another that I liked better, Lumpur said, no. The whole way of training was that you had to conform to the schedule. 
When I asked Lumpur if I could be excused from the long Dhamma talks, which I didn't understand, he just laughed and said that you have to do what everyone else does. Wat Bapong provided a very different monastic environment to the one Sumato was familiar with. In his previous Wat, he had been living in solitude, sitting and walking at his hut, single-mindedly devoting himself to the development of meditation. The only human contact had been with a novice who brought him his daily meal. It had been a beneficial period for him, but he had become unsure how sustainable such a kind of monastic life would be in the long term. What he felt he lacked was Vinaya training. Again, Lumpur Sumato is speaking here. At Wabapong, the emphasis was on communal activities, working together, eating together, etc., with all its rules. I knew that if I was going to live as a monk, I, I needed the monk's training, and I hadn't been getting that at the meditation center that I had been in before. What Lumpur gave me was a living situation to contemplate. You developed an awareness around the monastic tradition, and it was something that I knew I needed. I needed restraint and containment. I was a very impulsive person with a tremendous resistance to any kind of authority. I'd been in the Navy for four years and had developed an aversion to authority and rank. And then, before I went to Thailand, I spent a few years in Berkeley, California, where it was pretty much a case of doing your own thing. There was no sense of having to obey anybody or to live under a discipline of any sort. But at Wat Papong, I had to live following a tradition that I did not always like or approve of, in a situation where I had no authority whatsoever. I had a strong sense of my own freedom and right to asserting it, but I had no idea of serving anyone else. Being a servant was like admitting you were somehow inferior. So I found monastic life very useful for developing a sense of serving and supporting the monastic community. What impressed me about Lumpur was that although he seemed such a free spirit, an ebullient character, he was at the same time very strict with the Vinaya. It was a fascinating contrast. In California, the idea of freedom was being spontaneous and doing what you felt like. The idea of moral restraint and discipline was like this big ogre that's coming to squash you with all these rules and traditions. You can't do this and you can't do that, pressing down on you so much. So, my immediate reaction to the strictness of Wapapong was to feel oppressed. And yet my feeling about Lumpur was that, although his actions were always within the margins of the Vinaya, he was a free being. He wasn't coming from ideas of doing what he liked, but from inner freedom. So in contemplating him, I began to look at the Vinaya so as to use it, not just to cut yourself off or to oppress yourself, but for freedom. It was a conundrum. How do you take a restrictive and renunciant convention and liberate your mind through those conventions? I could see that there were no limits to Lumpur's mind. Oftentimes, attachment to rules makes you worry a lot and lack confidence, but Lumpur was radiant. He was obviously not just someone keeping a lot of rules and anxious about his purity, he was a living example of the freedom that comes from practice. Ajahn Sumedha was impressed and reassured by Lumpur's inquiries about his meditation practice. Lumpur merely acknowledged with a grunt that the method Ajahn Sumedha was using was valid and gave him permission to carry on with it if he found it useful. 
it did not seem to be a crucial issue. It was clear that what Longpo was teaching was not confined to a particular meditation technique. His way was a comprehensive training, the creation of a context or environment in which any legitimate technique would bear fruit. This was exactly what Ajahn Sumedho felt he needed. And again, uh, Ajahn Sumedho is speaking here. You have to find someone you resonate with. I'd been in other places, nothing had really clicked. I didn't have a fixed idea of having a teacher either. I had a strong sense of independence, but with Lumpur, I felt a very strong gut reaction. Something worked for me with him. The training at Wapapong was one of putting you in situations where you could reflect on your reactions, objections and so on, so that you began to see the opinions, views, prejudices and attachments that come up naturally in those situations. Lumpur was always emphasizing the need to reflect on the way things are. This is what I found most helpful because when you're as self-centered and opinionated as I was then, you really need to open your mind. So I found Lumpur's way much more clear and direct. As I was very suppressed already, I really needed a way of looking at myself honestly and clearly rather than just trying to suppress my feelings and force my mind into more refined states. He was also very aware of the individual needs of the monks, so it wasn't like there was a blanket technique. He realized that you really have to figure it out for yourself, and so I saw him, how he affected me, was... So, sorry. He realized that you really have to figure it out for yourself, and so, and so how I saw him, how he affected me, was that he seemed to provide a backdrop for my life from which I could reflect. So going back a little bit to um, that uh, um, speaking about med- a particular meditation practice, so as I was saying a day or two ago, in Thailand uh, it was very much the, the case that at particular monasteries they had particular techniques. So like, for example, where he was in Nongkai, that was a Mahasi Sayadaw uh, technique monastery and that um, uh, see each of the different places they would have a, a certain technique and if you were there you're expected to, to follow the, the local method and that's what the Ajahn teaches and so you do that, that, that method, the Ajahn Tong method or the Mahasi Sayadaw method or the Wat um, Mahathat method and so forth and so uh, Lumpur Sumedho often mentioned that when he uh, when he first met Ajahn Chah and he's, he asked him what kind of meditation technique he did he was a bit worried that he thought that Lumpur was going to say oh you, you shouldn't do that you should do my method just stop that it's no good do my method and that's uh, that's going to be uh, the way you should practice if you're, going to, if you're going to live here so he was very surprised uh, that uh, Lumpur was uh, was so open and the kind of method he'd been using was this uh, uh, form of inquiry uh, that he'd learnt from uh, a collection of books called Chan and Zen Training by Charles Luke and it was the Dhamma talks from a, uh, a retreat led by Master Xu Yun, as a Chinese Chan master, uh, that he had uh, the, the, the talks had been re- uh, recorded and, and uh, uh, put together in these Charles Luke books, and, uh, and he described in quite some detail this method of, of investigating the question, "Who am I?" as a sort of meditation method. And so Lumpur had been using that for a couple of years and had found uh, you know, very good results from that. And so he was astonished when he described that to Lumpur Cha, and he said, um, "Well, what are the results like? You know, what what 
what kind of uh, effects do you find from that? And and uh, he was, uh, and Ajahn Sumedho was able to describe, say, well, it's like this and like that, and, and I find it very beneficial. And he was surprised, as he said, with a with a with a grunt. Lumpur said, "Okay, let's we'll carry on doing that." And he th- and he was uh, startled because he thought, "Oh, really? I can just carry on with that? Oh, great!" Um, but then it was only later that he began to realize that, uh, that the particular methodologies that, that uh, Lumpur Cha taught were quite uh, many and varied. There were all sorts of different methods that he would teach from time to time in different situations. And it wasn't a, a focus on a specific method that was the, the way, uh, the, the approach of Lumpur Cha, but rather using the entirety of, of uh, the way of living, the monastery life, and all of the challenges that come up with the weather and the people that you live with and the routine and the food and the, the um, experiences of illness or, or, or different uh, building tasks and such like going on in the monastery, that all of it was a training environment and that the, the, the method was to use every aspect of the, the environment to be a source of, of learning and that, um, that it took some time to really uh, sort of take shape in Ajahn Sumato's uh, perceptions. So then to continue. Even with this kind of appreciation of the way of practice at Wadpapong, Ajahn Sumedho did not find it easy. Apart from the easily foreseen difficulties and frustrations he experienced with the language, culture, climate and diet, it was the vinya, ironically, that caused him most misgivings. His personality had always been an idealistic one. He was drawn to the big picture, the unifying vision, and tended to get impatient with the nuts and bolts of everyday life. Unsurprisingly, he felt a natural antipathy, like aversion or negativity, to much of the detailed veneer instruction, which could seem to him like a continual nitpicking over trivial matters. Again, Ajahn Sumedho is speaking here. The veneer readings were excruciatingly boring. You'd hear about how a monk who has a a rent, a a tear in his robe, so many inches above the hem, must have it sewn up before dawn. And I kept thinking, this isn't what I became a monk for. And uh, there would be uh, uh, daily readings from not just the Vinaya commentary, but the commentary on the commentary, a sub-commentary written in Thailand called the Pupasika Wanana um, by this Amara same name as me, uh, Venerable Amara. <laughs> and uh, it could go literally into excruciating detail, like pages and pages on on whether something uh, has been properly offered, if it's been offered by an elephant. <laughs> if an elephant is offering food or medicine, you know, how close do you have to be to the elephant and how, how what sort of degree must the trunk be extended or not extended to, to be within the forearm's distance? And Really, I mean, I'm not kidding. And so it's easy, and it's all being delivered in this, uh, and the, the, the book itself is in a, a kind of an old-fashioned Thai, and then Lumpur Chao's commentaries would be in the local dialect of Lao. And so, um, the, uh, the, and these could go on like three or four hours, four or five hours every evening. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what? So like if you're sitting in, in Russia listening to a di- uh, 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 a four-hour sermon in Russian with a kind of local uh, 
yeah, a, a commentary in the local dialect. You think, what am I doing here? What's this for? What's the point? And uh, so it's easy to understand or to sim- to sympathise with the young Ajahn Sumato's reasonable complaints and aversions. Then Ajahn Jayasaru continues. The Vinaya texts prescribe various duties to be formed towards a teacher by his students. One of them is to wash the teacher's feet on his return from arms round. At Wapapong, as many as twenty monks would be waiting for Lumpur at the dining hall footbath, eager for the honour of cleaning the dirt from his feet, or of having a hand on the towel to wipe them dry. At first, Ajahn Sumedha found the whole thing slightly ridiculous. Every day he would look on with bemusement as monks started to make their way out to the footbath. It was the kind of ritual that made him feel alienated from the rest of the community. He would be aware of the critical, judgmental part of his mind coming to the fore. And then Ajahn Sumato is speaking again. But then I started listening to myself and I thought, this is really an unpleasant frame of mind to be in. Is it anything to get so upset about? They haven't made me do it. It's all right. There's nothing wrong with 20 men washing one man's feet. It's not immoral or bad behavior. And maybe they enjoy it. Maybe they want to do it. Maybe it's all right to do that. Maybe I should do it. (laughs) So the next morning, 21 monks ran out and washed Lumpur's feet. There was no problem after that. It felt really good. That nasty thing in me had stopped. Although the Buddha called praise and blame worldly dhammas, quote-unquote, even the most dedicated and unworldly spiritual seekers must learn how to deal with them skillfully. Throughout his early days at Wapapong, Ajahn Sumedho received generous praise. In Buddhist cultures, the voluntary renunciation of sensual pleasures in favor of spiritual training is an esteemed virtue. The sacrifices Ajahn Sumedho had made to become a monk inspired both his fellow monastics and the monastery's lay supporters. In leaving America and donning the ochre robe, not only had he given up a standard of living that that Isan peasant farmers could only dream about, but he had done so in exchange for life in one of the strictest and most austere forest watts in the country. The conservative Isan people, with their sense of security and well-being so bound up with the maintenance of their traditions, were impressed by how well Ajahn Sumato could live in exile from the conditions he was used to. They were inspired by how diligent and dedicated he was in his practice. As the only Westerner, he stood out and was a centre of attention wherever he went, second only to Lumpur himself. On the other hand, it's common for Thais to possess a natural, apparently almost effortless physical grace, which is enhanced by the monastic emphasis on developing mindfulness through close attention to form and detail. It confused them to see Ajahn Sumato physically imposing and with an obvious zeal for the practice, but at the same time, by their standards, so awkward and ungainly. In most, it provoked a quiet but affectionate amusement. For some, that amusement was soured with a hint of fear, jealousy and resentment. Ajahn Sumato both a little paranoid and enjoying the attention, (laughs) could not help but feel self-conscious. And again, this is Ajahn Sumedho speaking. They would ask, how old are you? And I'd say, 33. And they'd say, really? We thought you were at least 60. (laughs) 
Then they would criticize the way I walked and say, you don't walk right. You're not very mindful when you walk. And I'd take this shoulder bag and I'd just dump it down without giving it any importance. And they'd say, you put your bag down right. You take it like this, fold it over, and then you set it down beside you like that. The way I ate, the way I walked, the way I talked, it seemed that everything I did was criticized and made fun of. But something made me stay on and endure through it. I actually learned how to conform to a tradition and a discipline. And that took a number of years, really. Because there was always a strong resistance. But I began to understand the wisdom of the Vinaya, and over the years, my equanimity grew. It's also, as I was mentioning the other day, in northeast Thailand, that they don't have the same kind of restrictions about talking about physical features or personal qualities, things that you, you would... Um, uh, you would not sort of mention or that you would, you would sort of be, uh, you'd think, or oh, better not say anything about such and such. But they'll say, oh, <clears throat> they, well, like, like he says, oh, you're, oh you're, you're only 33, I thought you were 60, you look so old. Or they, they, they kind of stroke, he said, they, they stroke his skin and go, oh, your skin's really ugly. <laughs> it's covered in all these kind of blotches. That's, all, that's, that's really ugly, isn't it? And they're not, not being insulting, or there's someone, they, they say, oh, your nose is really huge. You've got the biggest nose I've ever seen. And they're not trying to be insulting, they're like, oh, you're really fat, aren't you? Wow, you're, you're so fat. I've got a, my cousin's nearly as fat as you, but not, not, not as fat as you are. <laughs> and then you know, the Westerners go, excuse me, do you mind? <laughs> Don't talk about that. And... Uh, yeah, it could, it could be quite problematic. There was this one monk, Abignano, who was, uh, he'd been with the Black Panthers in Detroit. He's an African-American. And uh, they got to him, wow, your skin is really, really black. You're so dark. How does that feel? <laughs> and yeah, he's like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> and uh, so, but it was a good, te- it was a good test for him because they, they weren't trying to be insulting. It's just like, wow, I never saw anyone as black as you. That's amazing. And there was a kind of toothpaste that they used to manufacture that was called Darkie, and it had a, a kind of um, uh, someone in blackface and like an actor in blackface with a top hat, you know, with uh, with black makeup on, as like sort of a, a, a black and white minstrel on the on the on the tube, and they they give him tubes of it because they think, oh, it's just like you, you know, so it looks like you do, so you you'll really appreciate, it'll make you think of home. And it's like, you know, this guy is he'd been running around with people in Detroit, you know, following police cars with shotguns, you know, so uh, yeah, it was. Uh, but you, 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 you couldn't really take it personally because it obviously it was never meant with any sort of insult or a challenge or trying to make you feel uncomfortable. They just, they, they would um, just remark it. Oh, wow, you farangs really smell strange. So can, you, can you smell how strong the, the smell is? is that, do you notice that, how, strong, how, how much you smell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and they're not they're not being insulting, so that it's a uh, it can be quite disarming, uh, and because it will take it very personally. Or like uh, as he would say that he, Lumpur Sumedha would often tell this, this story of how they would that remark on how he walked and said, "Well, you, yeah, you don't walk, you, you don't walk like Lumpur does. You, yeah, he walks really mindfully, but you don't, do you?" Excuse me. <laughs> 
and and they they would just be commenting on what they're seeing. This like it's a very matter of fact, like the shape of a tree or a, or what the weather's like that day. Just, they would they wouldn't make it anything uh, uh, anything personal. And then they would talk about themselves in that way. That um, you know, let's say uh, as some of the villagers would would come along and and uh, often they uh, they would uh, like have members of the family with them and. And so Mayor John would say, "Oh, I, you know, I, I bought a couple of my kids today." And then one of her daughters would say, "I'm the fat one," you know? <laughs> and he, you know, she was like three times the size of the other, uh, of the other, her sister sitting there. She said, "I'm the fat one," quite, you know, like not in, as you would in the West, where you're trying to 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 uh, say not notice that someone's got some kind of distinctive feature, like they're much bigger or they've got one arm or they. Different color or whatever, but, uh, so it's it's a bit. It takes a bit of getting used to, but it's quite uh, quite delightful in its own its own way, and when uh, you uh, become accustomed to it. The um, uh, <coughs> there was a, also reading this. It reminds me of a story Ajahn Viridamo told when he was. Living at a very very poor branch monastery, Bandui, which is um, uh, Lumposi, one of Ajahn Chah's actually now Ajahn Chah's oldest disciple. So he's in his nineties. So he's like the oldest surviving, well, physically the, the oldest uh, of the of Lumposi's um, disciples. And uh, Ajahn Viridama was out there as a as a young bhikkhu. And uh, uh, again, we, where, where Westerners were staying, you tended to get a bigger variety of visitors to the monastery. So, um, one day uh, when Ajahn V was was living at this monastery, some people came out to visit, in, driving a Mercedes. And and in Thailand, back, back in the sort of seventies and eighties, to own a Mercedes is like the equivalent of arahantship. <laughs> it's like you, you have reached the all that can be achieved with human life if you drive a Mercedes. Rolls Royces didn't even really, maybe the king had a Rolls Royce, but they didn't really enter into the, the group mindset. But um, to have a Mercedes was just like, wow, it's the kind of pinnacle of human possibility. And so one day this, this family came out to visit Bandui and uh, to, to uh, pay respects to Ajahn Si and to, to see uh, uh, Ajahn Viridamo. And um, and after they, they, the people had left and driven away, then Ajahn V turned to Ajahn C and said, uh, mm-hmm. "So, uh, Tanajan, do you think uh, uh, the, any of the Thai monks? Do you think that any of them would disrobe if you offered them a Mercedes?" And Ajahn C looked at him and said, "Mercedes? They'd disrobe if you offered them a Honda Fifty, you know, <laughs> a little scoot, you know. If they just offered them a, a, you know, a motor scooter, and they'd be out like a shot." And uh, so, whereas Prajan V, uh, they'd be totally uninterested in uh, owning a Mercedes, and that would, so that gives you a bit of a, con, you know, a, a um, not to to be critical of the the local time monks, but the, in those days, if you owned a Honda Fifty, it's like wow, you know, they're a really rich family. They got they got a scooter, ooh, really, and they and then people would come along and have a look at it. Ask for a chance to to ride it and so on, so that it was uh, a, a um, not a small thing. So that, uh, but for the west for the westerners, that so the Thai people would be amazed and say, "So if somebody gave you a offered you a Mercedes, you wouldn't just leave and 
get married? Is it, well, no, why would I do that? But you know, with the Mercedes, I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing. It's, it's really something special. But uh, so they would uh, again, they'd be uh, um, sort of impressed with what a fantastic renunciant you were. But in in for most of us, they're just completely uninterested in in owning a car and, and had, didn't have that same kind of value or or, uh, or meaning. So any questions, reflections, thoughts? Don't be shy. Like listening to Adam Charles, like uh, he had he had a big heart, but also he was very strict on women. And uh, when one person was here, then I had a chance to meet him in his country, like on the Nagarikas and the Junior. I asked him the, the same question that uh, like, uh, for me it's quite difficult to have this balance between this like uh, paradoxical experiences. On the one hand, I feel that my heart getting really big and big to feel like I can embrace everything. But on the other hand, I have to be very strict. I have to get told of just by tiny little thing and sometimes very stressful and sometimes I cannot understand to combine this to to this like a very different things at the same time. And he was he gave me quite lengthy answer. But it was too impressive <laughs> to, to see him answering my question. So I completely forgot what he said. <laughs> I, I kind of remember that he was talking about how he got told of just tiny little by thing by the mm-hmm. time loans. But I kind of I'd like to ask you the same question again, like uh, how to deal with this like a stress from like uh, this having quite big heart inside me, but at the same time like uh, to deal with this like very strict like uh, sometimes like a uh, very <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, the perennial question. It's like Jean uh, Paul Semedo's comment about. Um, yet, my feeling about Lumpur was that although his actions were always within the margins of the vinaya, he was a free being. He wasn't coming from ideas of doing what he liked, but from inner freedom. So in contemplating him, I began to look at the vinaya so as to use it, not just to cut yourself off or oppress yourself, but for freedom. So it's, it's not an easy thing, but it's like uh, the other day I was quoting that exchange between the two of them where, where Lumpur Shah said, Sumedho, you must find it strange that the, the, uh, the Dhamma is all about letting go and the vinaya is all about holding on. And, uh, and so then... Uh, so the, the young Ajahn Sumedho thought, okay, now Lumpur is going to explain how that all uh, how that all fits together. But all that Lumpur said was, when you figure out how that works, you'll be fine. That's all. <laughs> so you can't really it's it, you can't really conceptualize it because you can only kind of see the extremes whereby freedom equals sort of defying the conventions, and then then somebody recognizes, well, that's not quite it. And then trying to keep all the conventions and be sort of super sincere and, and strict, then you find yourself being 
really uptight. And think, well, that's not it either. So it's it's rather like riding a bicycle. You can't. It's not a theory. You just have to keep trying and falling off. And then one day, that oh, I I'm actually I'm riding the bike. How am I, how am I doing this? And then you fall off again. But you, it's like a whole body learning. It's like a, you know, like you can't learn to swim by reading a book about it. You can't. Right, learn to ride a bicycle by reading a book about it. It's not an idea. It's like a, it's a whole body learning. It's a whole being needs to be involved. And so, you you can hear these principles. You know, the Dhamma is all about letting go. The Vinaya is all about holding on. And that, uh, but just to to be able to remind yourself of that. And then, like riding a bike, then one time you fall over this side, another time you fall over that side, and then you wobble a bit, and oh, I think I'm just about. <laughs> and then, and then somehow, somehow there's a there's a learning, there's a an adjusting of the system, and then you you find that oh right, on the on on the one hand, I'm following what is expected of me, and any Gary Carr was supposed to be like this, but inside everything is totally okay. There's no limit. Oh, and then you fall off again, you know. But you're sort of noticing how that works moment by moment. It's okay. From the outside, it looks like I'm being a good, well behaved Anagari car, uh, and that's how it looks. But inside, there's nobody doing anything. Oh. And then you, the, you, that, in that moment, you recognize, okay, that's it. That's how it works. Like on a bicycle, like you actually go for a couple of yards without falling off. You're, oh. <laughs> you, you, so you slowly get a feeling for, okay, so I'm doing the right thing, but it's not because there's the sort of the authority figure saying you'll be punished if you're a bad girl, you know, uh, or that uh, good monks do this, bad monks do that. Um, and it, it takes a long time I, for myself. I uh, I'd been in robes at least three years. I mean, I was it was being at Chithurst um, probably in nineteen eighty or eighty one, so three maybe four years, and um, and it was actually living coming to live with with Lumpur Sumedho and seeing how he functioned that really started dawning on me, because up until that point, all the time I've been in Thailand, I, I really took it that, that obedience to the form equals good practice. And the more obedient you are, the better your practice is. And so good practice is synonymous with realizing Nibbāna. So the more obedient you are, the more you just obey the form and do what's expected, then the closer you are to reality. And uh, and so I just sort of that was kind of automatic. I'd grown up in a succession of of schools with lots of rules and, and expectations of right behaviour. And my my family weren't religious people, but uh, they certainly had extremely clear protocols about what are polite table manners, how you speak, the correct um, uh, like ways of of uh, uh, how you behave sort of writing thank you letters to your grandparents uh, how you spread the butter on your toast with the back of the knife towards you don't point the blade at you that's not how in you you hold the knife like this you don't hold the knife like that 
And you know, so there's the, there was all kinds of ways you do things and don't do things, and then you, you get punished or scolded if you do it wrong. So I just had assumed that, completely unconsciously, that obedience equals good practice. And so then coming to, to Chithurst, and then, again, Lumpur Sumedho is a very strict monk, but there, there were certain times where he would just relate to a situation and, you, and you'd be feeling like, oh, you know, the hammer's going to come down, you know, the sun is going to get really scolded, and you're sort of waiting for the, for the, the, uh, the descent, <laughs> the, 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 kind of the blow to fall. And then, uh, and then Lumpur Sumedha would just do something completely different. He would, uh, almost like he, he uh, that totally offensive behavior was invisible, and just, he made no comment. It's like, what? <laughs> and, uh, and it really startled me several times. And there was one particular monk who was way out of the bounds of what people should do and shouldn't do. <laughs> And there were times when you when you think, oh my goodness, yeah, uh, Tanajan's going to really let him have it, and then he just wouldn't say anything, or he'd be sort of strangely friendly and accommodating. And he go, <laughs> and then it, and then it became then also listening to his teachings and about attachment and 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 identification with the form and so on, and you began to see that it wasn't a matter of dismissing the, the, the form or, 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 or making fun of it or, or disregarding it but seeing that the, the conventions, the forms they're not liberating in and of themselves and how um, that uh, just by obeying you're, you're, you're training yourself to be kind of orderly or, or obedient but that, what was really striking was how I'd assumed that is, that's liberating in and of itself. And there'd be this, these occasional gestures where it would be clear like, well, the form is this, and this monk is doing completely the opposite. But somehow, in that moment, it's 100% okay with the Ajahn. And, uh, and so he, and he was giving many, many teachings, and, and, it was, and, and his teaching was so clear. But, it really dawned on me, like, oh my goodness, this last three or four years, I've just made this assumption that obedience to the form equals good practice. It's it's part of the practice, but it's not just. I thought you're just being a well-trained you know, animal. You know, you're kind of a performing monk, a performing monkey. You know, <laughs> you're just becoming a well-trained performer. You're performing the monk thing, and it's just a, a set of behaviors. And it really hit me, like, how, how could just learning a set of behaviours be liberating in and of itself? It's, it has to be a means to an end. Oh! <laughs> and, uh, and it was really... It, but it took a long time, you know, like living right in the community and, and uh, you know, practising meditation every day. So it, it, it took, yeah, three or four years just to sort of, oh my goodness, what, what have I been doing? And um, and I'd probably heard Lumpur Sumedho giving yeah, at least a dozen Dhamma talks on that theme, and sort of and thought, oh, that's really inspiring, that's really great, and then completely missing the meaning of it, <laughs> like and realizing, oh, he's probably said this a few times before, <laughs> and and I just missed it because it's something just wasn't ready for that, because the 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 presumptions that the mind made about what I should do, what a good monk is, what a bad monk is, and 
how I should be. And uh, it was uh, it was really uh, just seeing how he could accommodate people who were really eccentric or people who were who were kind of crazy, and uh, and without any stretch. There was not not sort of like oh, I'm giving this person a uh, special treatment because of this or that, but just it wasn't anything forced. It was completely natural. So that the 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 the, the obedience to the form was very very clearly within the context of of dhamma, and so that you could see that the 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 form could be fully respected and honoured, but it wasn't uh, just a a, uh, a set of behaviours that you were that you were learning. It was much there was a whole extra dimension there that was beyond just learning the behaviors and so it really changed my whole view so I, and and the interesting thing is that the more that you are able to see the sort of obedience to the form or the or the monastic etiquette and so forth in that context the easier it is to to do it the, the easier it is to be more precise and careful because you're not, you're not relating to it as a limitation or as a sort of you should. It's not like submission to an authority, but it's it's like a uh, it's much more of a natural response to a situation and to a, to a particular set of uh, of conditions. And so that in a mysterious way, it's easier to be stricter when you when you have that perspective of. If it's only a, a, a relatively, it's a, it's a conditioned set of responses and actions. It's not anything of absolute value in and of itself. It's, it's strange, but uh, it's like the the and that's how you see how the Dhamma and the Vinaya work together. That the more there's non-attachment and non-identification, the more it is 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 easy to be very very precise and careful. But I see the time has gone by again. These minutes keep flying by. So I'll leave it there for today. Um, tomorrow there won't be a reading because I have to go to London in the afternoon. But um, the uh, next day, the 7th, we'll have a, a reading. So there won't be one tomorrow, but the day after.